We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Mike Viseth, who is a professor emeritus of international political economy at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. He is an authority on globalization and the global wine market. Mike is an authority on global wine markets who travels the world studying wine economics and speaking to wine industry groups. He reports his discoveries on his blog, The Wine Economist, and in more than a dozen books. Mike was named Washington Professor of the Year by the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. His 2005 book, Globaloni, was selected as the best business book of 2005 by Library Journal. Mike has also taught at the American Institute on Political and Economic Systems in Prague and at the Bologna Center of the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies in Italy. He was an academic advisor to the award-winning educational website for the PBS WGBH series, The Commanding Heights, The Battle for the World Economy. He is a trustee of the University of Puget Sound. Mike earned the BA degree in economics and mathematics from the University of Puget Sound and a master's and PhD in economics from Purdue University. Mike, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I'm looking forward to learning some economics from you, particularly in your area of expertise. Before we start, is there anything else you want our audience to know about you? Well, no, you've you've covered it very well, Ted, and uh, thank you for inviting me to uh, come on board the podcast. Uh, I've been fortunate through my career to teach at a liberal arts college, University of Puget Sound, and it's given me the opportunity to work with uh, amazing students and to, uh, in my research, to study all sorts of things. It is interesting that uh, in teaching uh, the uh, international political economy senior thesis, it was a situation where the students got to choose topics that involve politics and economics and society. and I've had more than one student who decided to write a thesis on uh, contagion and pandemics. And so they, in doing that research, they taught me about it. And it's been so interesting in my mind to see how some of the work that they were doing, uh, drawing on people at the Gates Foundation, for example, for their research, uh, how that that shockingly plays out in the real world. Wow, that's really interesting, Mike. Perhaps offline, we can um, talk about that, the research that's been done around pandemics with your students, and maybe even include a link to that in the show notes, if that's a possibility. I've been wanting to have an economist on the show with the, you know, we all understand the profound effects that this pandemic is having on the economy, on the globe, on large businesses, small businesses, individual workers. So I I think we're really going to get a lot from your perspective, and I hope you can educate us all. I'd like to start by just asking you to tell us a bit more about your professional background. Oh, so I, um, as an economist, I've written textbooks on economics and public finance and international political economy. 
and uh, professional books and popular books on uh, international debt. Uh, I'm a specialist on the economics of globalization. And then in the last uh, last dozen years, I've been writing a lot about uh, the wine business. So how did you end up focusing on wine? You know, clearly that has become a global business, so I can see that tie in. But but tell us how, how you landed on wine as an area of expertise. Well, there's there's uh, two stories. I'll, the long one, which I'll try to keep not so long, is uh, back in the early 1980s, my wife and I were making a uh, bargain visit to Napa Valley. So it was a very, very long time ago. And it was the end of the day, and we were driving back to a cheap hotel in Santa Rosa, and we had time for one last stop. And we pulled into this place because I recognized the name. And uh, talking to the winemaker, I was asking him my uh, amateur questions and trying not to spill wine while I was uh, swirling it. And he found out that I was an economics professor, and he began to ask me really serious questions about the economy. Because in the wine business, you uh, borrow money now to plant vineyards, and the vineyards don't start producing for three or four or five years, and then it's another couple of years before you can sell it. And in the early 80s, interest rates and inflation rates were through the roof. So he really wanted to know what the economy would do, because it would, de- it would determine what he got to do with his wines, or what he had to do in order to pay the bills. And so it was important. So that got me thinking about this. And then uh, in for my 2005 book, Global Oni, uh, Global Oni was a uh, set of case studies of how globalization plays out in different industries. And one of the industries that I chose was wine. And it was just so fascinating that everything I knew about economics applied in some way to the wine business. So I have to ask you, is this winemaker aware that he changed the trajectory of your career a bit with that one conversation? Well, yeah, and I won't I won't reveal who it is, but it was interesting. I was I gave a talk at a financial symposium in Napa Valley about three years ago. And I looked down in the front row and there he is. He's sitting there, he's scrawling notes as rapidly as I as he could. And uh, so I went down afterwards and I thanked him. And he, of course, had no memory. <laughs> of it at all. He talks to a lot of people. I think he was a natural teacher. He had actually been a uh, a teacher before that. And so uh, teachers are good teachers are good question askers. And so that's what he was doing. But I did get a chance finally to say thank you. So that was that was an honor. That's great. Uh, there's a lot of ventures that get launched and careers that change o- over a glass of wine. And um, that's yours is just one of many, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. Um, Mike, um, U.S. unemployment numbers are going up on a weekly basis, and there are concerns, uh, uh, various serious concerns about the economy. We've seen how volatile the stock market has been recently. Are we actually in a recession right now, or how do you read the current situation that we're in? Well, Sarah, the, um, I, think we're, I think the bad news about unemployment isn't done yet. I saw a forecast today. We're up at about, um, in the last three weeks, we've had 17 million new unemployed. And I saw a forecast that, that would rise by another perhaps 10, 10 million. Are we in a recession? From a technical standpoint, no. But that's only because the definition of a recession is two quarters in a row of negative economic growth. And so that's only something you can recognize after the fact. From a practical standpoint, I think it's very clear that we are in a recession. And 
probably the most serious short-term situation since the Great Depression. That that's great perspective, um, Mike, because you, we'd see stuff where people are saying recession, depression, and and I appreciate your perspective and and giving us that bit of education on looking at trailing numbers. I read a number of your articles in preparation for this interview. And in one of them, you talk about the idea of recessions that are either V-shaped, W-shaped, U-shaped, and L-shaped. And I found these to be very interesting <laughs> to just think about in terms of the way that this particular pandemic might affect the con- the economy. So can you explain the idea of these different um, shaped recessions to our audience? Be happy to that um, if you think about a recession as being a downwards uh, movement, then the question is, what does the recovery part of that look like? And I'm seeing many, many forecasts today of what we call a V-shape, which is the, um, I like to think of it as the economy closes down and sales and production and incomes fall. And then it opens up and everybody goes back to work and uh, things more or less return to normal. So you have a downward movement and an upward movement, and that makes that makes a V. And um, in the article that I I wrote about this, I said it was probably the best case scenario because that would mean that the the dislocation, although it's severe and that's just obvious, uh, it would be relatively short and that it would be possible to move on after that. The chances of that are best if the sort of economic aid that the federal government is applying is, uh, is substantial and broad to include additional aid for state and local governments, for example. Mm-hmm. And it needs to happen pretty fast. Okay. And then how about the idea of these other shapes that we potentially might see in, in, a, in a potential recovery? Yeah. A, a W is that you have that V shape, and then you have another one right after it, but probably not so severe. And that would happen, I think, if, the, if we had another um, pandemic, the coronavirus 2 uh, were to happen next year. Um, that would probably that would probably be, we would know more about what to do about that, so that the economic consequences would be less severe, but there would still certainly be some. So that that's uh, that's based on uh, what happens in the public health element, not the economy. Mm-hmm. The typical recession, which instead of lasting one year or two years, tends to last um, eighteen months to three years to five years, is called a U-shaped recession, and that just means that um, that could happen in this case. If the if you had at the bottom of the V, if you had some bank failures and a good many uh, businesses in production go out of business or slow way down, so they would take longer to recover. And then finally, the one that it, that everybody fears is called the L-shaped recession, or somebody called it. The Economist magazine called it the bathtub recession, I think, which is the economy declines, and then it, it doesn't go up again. Not for a really long time, um, and in the in the article that I wrote, uh, I talked about how if if you want to see what that looks like, you can look at Japan when its financial bubble burst in the '90s. That there was a sort of a zombie economy where it continued on for a long, long time. Um, honestly, I think that the huge amounts of money and credit that have been created uh, to try to aid the economy to aid people and businesses, I think that 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 is motivated by the need to avoid an L-shaped economy, avoid the zombie. Right. 
Right. So Mike, getting back to this idea of the W-shaped recession, you mentioned that if we had a COVID 2.0, where we get like a seasonal thing where it happens again next year, would it be fair to say that as we're, you know, flattening the curve here, economies hopefully are recovering if we restart the economy too soon and people start getting sick again and we have to shut everything down again, we could even see a W shape in a shorter term than even a year from now? I agree. I think that's exactly right. Okay. I think that's the fear. That's my fear mm-hmm. of uh, of being shut down too soon. Uh, I'm, I'm near the Seattle area. So like you in California, uh, we closed down pretty fast, uh, faster than some at least. And, um, and, and so I'm, a, I'm looking at New York. I, I worry about coming out too fast because I think they pay the price for going into the, the lockdown uh, too late. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So Mike, China and Italy are somewhere in the neighborhood of four to eight, maybe even a little bit more weeks ahead of us in terms of this pandemic. What can we learn from how their economies have fared? So um, that's a that's a wonderful question, and you you gave me that question earlier, and I was been thinking about it. Uh, the uh, the situations going in in both places are, are very different. I can I can give you a long academic talk about why they're different. But for me, the 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 thing about China is that well, in the U.S. we look around and we see the restaurants closed and the stores closed, and and we we think a lot about it in terms of the services that aren't available to us, but and that happened in China. But in China, we saw how the need to keep people apart had a really substantial effect on industrial production. And it really disturbed uh, global supply chains uh, uh, because of that. And so I think the, the lesson that for the U.S. to draw from China is probably that um, that that's going to happen here too. That the uh, the people will go, may go back to the restaurants, but the industrial productions and the supply chains are not going to be as easy to rebuild. And when we when we rebuild them, I think people would be more cautious, and that they will be rebuilt in a different way. Right, right. Yeah, it was actually interesting. The when those global supply chains coming out of China started to become disrupted. That actually shut, you know, caused an effect on our economy before the pandemic that ever really landed on our shores, or, or at least was really at, before it really had any traction. Correct. That's right. Absolutely right. So Italy, and Italy's a, an interesting, different case um, from the economics because the U.S. economy was very strong. It had some cracks, but very strong before. And it's taken this big hit. The Italian economy was probably already in recession when the coronavirus struck there. And so um, the thing I have, I want to watch there is to see how much uh, cooperation there is in the European Union to aid them, because Italy doesn't have the ability to borrow as much money to to uh, stimulate their economy or spend as much money as we do to stimulate their economy. And so as they try to come out. It's to see how they can um, marshal resources to uh, to recover to recover more than they would otherwise. What what are we are you seeing any hints so far about how the European Union is is approaching the 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 economic issues that Italy is facing? 
Sure. The and and the answer there is that um, they're divided. That's the it's the European Union is not very united right. on these things, and that there there are a few hard lines. Um, interestingly, Germany, which has always been so tight on the purse strings, realizes I think the leaders there realize what's at stake, and so they've they've come around to what I think is a sensible position. But there are still hardliners and. Um, these are people that are uh, leaders that will need to be convinced. Mm, okay. So, Mike, I want to focus in with a few questions around your your real area of expertise or area of focus. Um, can you tell us how the global wine industry, and in particular the U.S. wine industry, was doing prior to the COVID-19 pandemic? And I, I suspect there may be different pockets around the world, but I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. The global wine industry was uh, suffering from a plateauing of demand for the about the last five years. The demand was uh, actually shrinking in terms of number of bottles that were being purchased. But because the price of the bottles was going up, uh, something that amount spent was rising, but only modestly. And in in uh, the United States, in California. We uh, actually, in the last two years, have had a very substantial surplus of wine. And uh, in both the United States and in Europe, there has been what we call grubbing up or pulling out of grapevines to uh, try to bring supply. Science, science, science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. More into line with demand. And so before the coronavirus struck, the U.S. industry, especially, we had we had problems, and we were trying to figure out how to deal with them. And then, of course, the coronavirus came along, and so uh, now we're in this uh, sort of interesting situation where things appear to be pretty good. Although, obviously, restaurants and and bars and so forth aren't selling as much wine. The uh, people who are filling their uh, hordes went to wine shops and supermarkets, especially in March, and they went on a wine spending spree. It's just been amazing. Apparently, it it uh, it peaked at the uh, end of March, but in the short term, we've sold more wine than we have in a long time, and I think uh, it has done a little bit of good to soak up the surplus that we had. But that's not going to last forever. Right. Are, are there any thoughts about why that either splurging or hoarding or however you want to define it, why why that peaked at the end of March? Is is there? No. Well, I think it, it might have been that people just had as much as much wine as they could afford to happen there. It's still um, in the weeks uh, early April. It's still uh, well above what it was a year ago this time. Okay. Um, 
but but it, it's uh, it's 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 not rising uh, as much as it. And it was enough uh, purchased at retail to more than make up for the amount of wine that um, wasn't being sold in restaurants. Okay. Uh, and but so, it still creates a problem. Right. Yeah. Right. And so then besides what we were seeing up through the end of March, what are your thoughts about kind of the both the short term and the longer term effects of how, how the pandemic is going to affect the economics of the wine industry? Well, the deep recession that we're in, the, depending on how deep it is and how long it is and what the effects are on income, uh, we know from um, the uh, financial crisis of 2008 that eventually this eats into people's spending habits, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure that we're going to see a, uh, a decrease in demand uh, as a result of this, and probably a movement down to lower-priced wines as well. So it's a, it's a real problem, and then of course it's especially a problem in the wine industry for smaller producers because uh, they've had their tasting room shut down. And one of the things that smart, small wineries did after 2008 is that they started to sell more wine directly to consumers at tasting rooms and wine clubs. And their tasting rooms are shut down, although a number of them have virtual tasting rooms now. Have you seen this at all? No, you're going to have to tell. I was As soon as you said that, that was going to be my next question. Is tell, tell us about what a virtual tasting room is. No, so uh, my, uh, of course, my email flow is different than the average person's, but, but I, I'm getting a constant feed of uh, wineries. And what they'll do is they're going to go online at this hour. And for this many dollars, they will ship you the wines that they're going to be tasting. And they'll come up on Zoom and you'll come up on Zoom. And, and uh, you can either taste as a group. I've had a number of invitations to do this. Uh, or if you want to do this, um, they'll uh, do one-on-one -on -one tastings. You can make an appointment. And they'll come into your home on your computer or smartphone. And they taste along. You can ask questions. You can compare notes. I saw one of them that uh, you... Uh, if you buy a, a case, half of it goes to you, half of it goes to a friend, and then they'll be there too. And so, uh, like everyone else, they're learning about how to make this work. Right. But they're trying real hard. Yeah, that's that is real uh, ingenuity at work and, and trying that's to right. make the best of a tough situation, right? Now, there you might like this one. I I got an email where if, if I bought a case of their wine for free. They would send two bottles to my favorite healthcare service provider. Oh, really? That's <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> yeah. We, we've we've been um, trying to support some of the the local restaurants by doing takeout. And today, when we went to to pick up some food, you could actually um, place a separate order, and and then they would take it to the local hospital. So similar ideas, very kind gestures. Um, I've not seen it yet in the in the wine industry, but I have to say, as as someone who likes wine, I, I think I like that gesture. It is. It's a pretty small winery, yeah. But but it just so everybody feels helpless, and so everybody's trying to. What can I do to help somebody? Right, so. right. That's great. Um, so, Mike, it, it's. I think it's pretty clear to all of us that the hospitality industry has been hit very hard. You know, uh, hotels are empty. Restaurants have had their their doors closed, as you mentioned. Tasting wine tasting rooms have had their doors closed. 
the wine and travel and hospitality industries are, are very definitely linked. Could you tell us what other industries related to wine and related to hospitality have been affected by the pandemic? Sure. Uh, for that, you need to sort of think about the um, supply chain or value chain. And, and hospitality and tasting rooms are all uh, post-production. It's all to sell the wine. Uh, but if you look at uh, producing the wine and getting it to market, uh, wine has kind of a globally integrated supply chain. And so um, because it's uh, it's integrated, it, it suffers those supply chain problems. And so uh, a couple of them, there's an imbalance in container shipping going in and out of the United States, which means that it's uh, it's difficult for uh, foreign producers to to get space on container ships to get their stuff here. And so this affects wine in a number of ways because the the cork in your in your bottle comes from the Mediterranean, from uh, Portugal or Spain or Morocco, for example. The uh, bottle itself. If it's a less than $20 bottle of wine, the bottle itself may well have come from China. China has been a big supplier of glass around the world for about the last 12 years. And so there have been some glass shortages. Uh, the Gallo company has fired up their glass factory to try to supply more bottles for U.S. wineries. Uh, if you have an import uh, wine, the wine itself comes from another country. Uh, uh, if you have a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, for example, well over half of their exports come to the U.S. in giant 24,000-liter bladders that completely fill the inside of a 20-foot shipping container. Really? Okay. Yeah. It comes here in these huge bladders. They come into a port of Oakland and other places. They get uh, uh, bottled here and distributed on this side. And so uh, the uh, shipping, shipping's part of the supply chain, uh, eventually will is affecting uh, the very supplies of some of the wines. Yeah. Now, it's just hard to imagine that much wine, isn't it? It is. It is. It's, uh, yeah, it never even occurred to me that, that it would be shipped that way. So, yeah, you've, you've taught me something new, Mike. No, it's... It, it's um, there are arguments about quality, but it's from an environmental standpoint. Point, it's probably best not to have the bottles shipped right. from China to New Zealand and then to the U.S. full of wine. So, but anyway, yeah, right. a lot less shipping weight, and then uh, you're also getting volume in a smaller space, right? So you can put more That's containers right. on the ship. Yeah. So, so that all of the things that affect. Uh, um, a manufacturing operation with the, the supply chain and so forth are going to affect um, the, the actual production and, and distribution of wine. Right, right. So, Mike, what type of macro events do you see playing out in the wine industry over the next 12 to 24 or even 36 months as a result of the pandemic's effect on the economy? You already mentioned sure. potentially less consumption or or going in at a lower price point on wine. Do you, do you see other things happening? Consolidation sure. or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, consolidation is, is what I've got written down on my list for this. And it's both um, consolidation in uh, wine uh, vineyard ownership because uh, last year in California, there were probably um, 30,000 acres of grapes that were left to rot on the vine because there wasn't a market for them. And so that means they didn't earn any income for their 
the vineyard owner. So consolidation at the vineyards, consolidation at the wineries, especially among the small wineries. Some of those aren't going to make it out of all of this. Uh, but it was actually, um, I think, the thing that would be the most interesting for people in the wine industry is that there's likely to be consolidation among wine distributors, the, the middlemen who get the wine to the store shelves and so forth. Um, there's been a, uh, and when that consolidation happens, it tends to make it harder for smaller wineries to get their wines in the shops because the bigger distributors want to deal with um, bigger wineries and work with bigger retailers and so forth. So it's going to squeeze, it's, it's like the financial side of um, this recession is going to squeeze small community banks really, really hard. Right. The um, wine side of it is going to end up squeezing the smaller wineries uh, pretty, uh, pretty intensely. Interesting. Uh, have do we have information from previous economic downturns, just in terms of people's consumption patterns, whether they move out of wine and into beer or spirits, or from spirits to wine, or like, have you seen trends like that in previous downturns? In two, well, in 2008, the people talked about trading down, that they would uh, drop down a notch in terms of price um, during the recession. And then when the, when the uh, financial crisis was over, they more than jumped back up in terms of higher prices. Uh, I talked about it in terms of uh, trading over, that it seemed to me as I analyzed the data that instead of simply saying, I, I give up, I'm just, instead of buying $12 wine, I'm going to buy cheap cheaper wine than that, and I give up, uh, that people looked for something that was more casual so that they could say, I'm not, I'm just not taking wine as seriously. I'm maybe spending less, but it's just that way. Uh, and if that happens this time, uh, that could actually be bad news for wine because uh, we have a new competitor in the, the, the wine space. And this, if people trade over to something more casual, it may not be to a two-buck chuck kind of wine. It may be to uh, hard seltzer. Hard seltzer is is huge. And I mean, it's just alcohol and water and sugar or something like that. But uh, if, if people trade over from wine to hard seltzer, it might be hard to get them back. So I, I think we're all happy that to see this stocking up of wine going on because they're stocking up on wine, not hard seltzer. Yeah, it sounds like the white claw effect is kind of lurking in the in the background there, huh? Yeah, it is. It's 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 yes, absolutely. And you know you can you can make it out of anything you can make alcohol out of. So it's uh <laughs> whereas grapes you have to make out of fresh grapes that have just been harvested. So Right. Anyway. Yeah, so a lot of different opportunities to flex into different starting yep. product, right? So, Mike, I'm going to shift gears a little bit with this next question. Um, you're a former university professor. I think somewhere I saw that you said a recovering university professor. That's right. Um, how do you see the move to online classes in the midst of the shutdown affecting universities in, in the kind of short to longer term? Oh, it, was, it has been um, because I, I still have connections to my university. It, um, it has been interesting to watch. It's been kind of inspiring to see how the professors and their students have all shifted gears, all recognize the, the need to isolate and to, uh, to, to, to move, move away from campus fast and to move to online classes fast. 
And it's been inspiring to see how they have done that uh, through some adversity. And everybody is continuing to learn that, that at least that I talked to about this, the students and the professors both, but they're making go of it. And I think that's terrific. Uh, the big, there are big question marks um, about what's going to happen in the future. Uh, at my university, we're making contingency plans for the ability to come back to campus in the fall or um, in case of that W sort of a situation, uh, if we have to pivot in a different way. Um, and so we're just going to do that. The, in terms of the long term, it's kind of interesting because in, I think at least in my mind before, I, was, I had thought about, well, you know, there are real impersonal classes and then there are the totally online things. And I was wrong because if I thought about it, I would have recognized that most of the totally online things had some in-person elements. And uh, slowly, the uh, in-person uh, liberal arts kinds of face-to-face uh, -face classes had got more online resources. All of my professor colleagues have had materials online for a while, syllabi and readings and so forth. And so the movement toward a hybrid was already happening. And I think this will just accelerate it. Uh, it's something in one of the articles I call the magnification effect, that it's not going to change things, just going to speed them up along to uh, uh, where they were kind of moving slowly toward anyway. Right. And with this whole generation of digital natives that are now in universities, they're already comfortable living in this virtual, you know, atmosphere and using Zoom or Teams or Skype or whatever the uh, FaceTime, whatever the, the platform is and doing all of their work online. So I, you know, I think there's probably a baseline comfort that you and I may not have the inherently built in, right? I agree. I agree. It was about seven years ago when I was still teaching, I had a student who told me for his senior class that he wasn't going to do anything he couldn't do on his smartphone. He wouldn't read anything. He wouldn't write anything. I thought he was crazy, but I think he's probably not alone if he did it today. Yes. And if you go to a, a medical school these days, most of the lecture halls are almost empty and you know students are are taking the videos from those and watching them at one yeah. and a half or two times speed and doing it on their own terms and learning in different ways than than sitting in a lecture hall or you know interfacing directly with the professor so it is a different a, a changing environment mike as we kind of wrap up this interview one of the things that i've been asking my guests is if there are any small businesses or restaurants in the community where you live that you would like to give out a shout out to places that you frequent with the understanding that these small businesses and their owners and the people who work for them are, are really having a hard time with the economy in the face of this pandemic, and that anything we can do to give them some um, publicity and encourage people to perhaps go do takeout at the restaurants could help support them and help them weather the storm. So is there are there any places in your community that you'd like to give a mention? Well, I would, and I, I I really appreciate the opportunity. So I live in Tacoma, Washington, and um, there's a teeny tiny family-owned Vietnamese restaurant called Vien Dong, V-I-E-N-D-O-N-G, and uh, they are exactly in that the situation that you've done. They've uh, decided that they're going to try to pay their employees for as long as they can 
whether they have work for them or not, because they know they have rent to pay and bills and so forth. And so they're doing takeout. The, uh, the food is, is wonderful, but it's always the people that make things so very special. So uh, uh, that's my shout out to Viendong in Tacoma. Well, I appreciate you giving them that shout out. We will tr- I will try to find them online and include them in the show notes and on our social media so that they get a little bit of attention. It sounds like they're really trying to do the right thing in terms of supporting their employees during this tough time. And so if the, the community in Tacoma could do the, do the same and support Vien Dong, I think that would be wonderful. Mike, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to help educate us. Uh, I feel like I learned a lot about economics just speaking with you here for this half hour or so. And I appreciate uh, you sharing your expertise with the podcast and with our audience. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.